one way or the other. And that means that today's message is going to be hard to hear for some of you. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I will tell you that it's not a particularly easy message necessarily to give because it's not all that fun to stand up and tell, uh, tell a group of people, some of you are probably going to hell. But as the old Zeppelin song goes, in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Amen? There are two paths you can go on, but in the long run, there's still time to change the one you're on. And I do want you to change the one you're on if the one you're going on does not lead to a destination you'd like to arrive at. And um, there are people who will say to me when I tell them that there is a God who loves you, but he is also a God of justice and a God of judgment. They will say to me, well, I don't believe in a God like that. I only believe in a God of love. And what I say to them is, as much as I love you, you need to understand that what matters in eternity is not what we believe is true about God, but what actually is true about God. And what the Bible reveals to us and what God reveals to us through his word and through his spirit is that he is a God of perfect love, but also a God of perfect justice. And his perfect justice will be accomplished along with his perfect love for all eternity. And so uh, I'm going to tell you this morning not only about the great and the good and the blessings that will belong to those who belong to Christ, but also about the destiny of those who choose to reject him ultimately and finally. And so I will also tell you at the outset that if you're sitting out here this morning listening to me and you are not absolutely, positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, certain about where you will spend eternity, that this message may be very, very close to the most important message that you ever hear in your entire life. Because the Bible promises that we can be absolutely certain about where we will spend eternity. And my desire would be that you would spend it with me and with Jesus and with all those who love and serve and honor the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20, beginning at about verse 7. And uh, we're going to go on from there uh, all the way into chapter 21 a little bit. So if you've got your Bible, uh, go to Revelation chapter 20, about verse 7, and follow along here. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we believe exactly what the Bible teaches a few verses earlier, that there will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ from the city of Jerusalem where he will sit on David's throne as king and messiah. Why? Well, because it is prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would not only be the suffering servant of Yahweh who would die to take away sin and to uh, 
to redeem people out of slavery to sin and death and hell, but also that he would reign as the Davidic heir, as the king, the Messiah. And see, the, the, the part of the problem with Jesus being accepted by his own people when he came the first time was that they were expecting that the king-Messiah aspect would be the predominant thing. And when Jesus came in as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, son of a carpenter, peasant man who rides in to Jerusalem, not on a warrior steed, but on a donkey, barefooted with his disciples, some raggedy fishermen throwing their coats on the ground and saying, hail to the king. This is not exactly the way that they anticipated that the Messiah would arrive. But what we see here is that Jesus will establish his kingdom. Now, again, as I discussed last week, Pastor Jim and I uh, disagree, and he's wrong, um, uh, about when the return of Christ will take place. But we both agree, because we're both premillennial, just like the Bible, uh, <laughs> that, that Jesus will return prior to the millennium, and there will be this thousand-year reign of Christ. And during that thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will be chained and shut up, uh, imprisoned. He will be cast into what a place the Bible calls the abyss, and he will not be released for that entire thousand-year period. And Satan cannot deceive the nations anymore. He can't lead people into sin. He can't do what he did in the garden. And and why not? Well, because he is off the scene. He is imprisoned elsewhere. Now, if you ask me, where is the abyss? I have no idea. Uh, was he chained with? Not sure. Um, but he is uh, certainly held captive by God. Uh, and then after that thousand years are over, he's released for a short while. And what happens is, is that what we realize is that human nature has not changed. During the thousand years that Jesus actually reigns as the Son of God on the earth, human nature has not changed. And a whole bunch of the people that are alive on the earth at that time, when Satan makes his reappearance, will be able to gather a big gob of them up for one final rebellion against God. And that rebellion will be immediately crushed. And there won't even be a battle. Fire will just come down from heaven and consume everybody. And then Satan will be immediately judged, and he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, God will finally condemn Satan to his just punishment. Uh, and it's what is here called the lake of fire. It's elsewhere called Gehenna, uh, borrowing uh, from the historic valley of Himnon outside the city of Jerusalem where the garbage was burned. And this, the smoke and the fire of, in that place never went out. And Satan never escapes again. And note uh, also it says here that the beast and the false prophet were there also. They, note that they are still there. They were put there at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Uh, but they are still there a thousand years later. They are not annihilated. They do not pass out of existence. They are still there, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, that's grim. And it gets a little worse. 
uh, from a human perspective. Because what comes next is the judgment for all of the people who rebelled against God and wanted nothing to do with him. And we see the final judgment in verse, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what happens here is is cosmic level judgment. Earth and heaven, as we have known them, disappear. Uh, Peter describes that in Second Peter, about I believe it's chapter three. He says the earth and all the elements will be consumed, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And John sees that happen. He sees earth and all of the created universe disappear. And all that is left is God and the angelic realm and the souls of men and women and this great white throne. And everybody who is a member of the dead, which, by the way, the dead is not a term that refers to Christians. The dead is the unbelieving dead. And it says the great and the small. In other words, not the big and the little necessarily, but the ones who were well-regarded in human life and the ones who were of no account. Those who were famous and those whose lives were insignificant. The ordinary and the mighty, the big and the small, all stand before God. No one escapes. And they stand before this great white throne. And here at this throne, they're going to have a totally different kind of judgment than a Christian's judgment. Christians are judged according to their deeds also, but this is not, this is not the place for that. This is the judgment of the unbelieving dead. If you want to read about a Christian's judgment, it, it's uh, something like it is described in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And there you have uh, the, uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ described where believers stand before their Lord Jesus. And it says that the day will show the quality of each man's work according to what he has done, whether he has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stone. For every man's work will pass through the fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work as to what sort it is. And if what he has built survives, he will have a reward. If what he has built is burned up, then he himself will be saved, although he will suffer loss as one escaping through the flames. So the idea is this. Every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ has the foundation of their house built on Jesus Christ. And then you build your life on that foundation. 
And you can either build with things which last into eternity and receive a reward from God, things that are, in a sense, gold, silver, and precious stone. Or you can build with wood, hay, and stubble, which, when subjected to the fire, is consumed. And so, in a sense, a, a Christian's judgment is like being an, an athlete in the Olympics. You know, the best athletes get gold, silver, bronze medals, right? Uh, but the unless you, you know, are from, the, from Zimbabwe or, you know, the old USSR or something, they don't take the unsuccessful athletes out back and shoot them, right? Um, you don't do that. You know, maybe they still do that in China. I don't know. But unless you're in a total tyranny, they don't do that. It's an honor even to be a contestant at the games. Amen? And the very best athletes are rewarded. And in a sense, that is what uh, a Christian's judgment is like. It is a judgment for level of reward that you will receive. An unbeliever's judgment happens here at this great white throne, and it is an entirely different type of judgment. This is a sentencing hearing. You're not being evaluated as to whether you got 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, whatever. No, this is a sentencing hearing determining what the severity of your sentence in hell will be. And I don't know that it's like Dante's Inferno, you know, where you've got the lustful people over here and the uh, murderers over here and the thieves over here and, you know, the haters over here. And, you know, no, I don't think it's like that. But what we do see, according to Jesus' own teaching, is that those who knew most about God and his standards and his righteousness and about what he had done uh, for humanity in Jesus Christ and how he had sacrificed himself for us, that those people who knew their master's will, Jesus says, and did not do it, will be beaten with many stripes. In other words, you're punished more severely according to what you knew and what you rejected. And make no mistake, regardless, just as being in, just even being in heaven is a great joy and blessing, being in hell at whatever level of, of punishment that constitutes is still to be cut off from the presence of God and from everything that he made and to experience an eternity that is horrible from which there is no escape and a place that you do not want to be. This is why by the way, there are 165 references to hell in about, I think it's about 230 chapters in your entire New Testament, 165 references to hell, most of them on the lips of Jesus. He is the most frequent, acerbic, acidic preacher on hell in the entire Bible, and he tells us over and over, you don't want to go there. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants you to stay out of this place. He wants you to trust and obey him so that no one has to go there. But every single person who is an unbeliever at the final judgment will be presented for judgment. And they will be judged according to what is written about them in the books. In other words, everything in their life will have been recorded. And God will say, what did you do with your life? And those who are really wicked 
will get a really terrible judgment. And those that are less wicked will get a slightly less terrible judgment. And then a search will be made of all those who are pronounced guilty of rebellion against God to see if by some chance we have overlooked the fact that they are in the Lamb's book of life. And when their name is not found there, they will be cast into the lake of fire. And there they will remain forever and ever. And Jesus says, by the way, there the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. And a lot of people have a lot of trouble with this because they think, how can a loving God do what God describes himself as doing right here? And what you need to understand is that punishment in hell is perfectly just because God has given every opportunity to repent. In fact, if you look down through uh, salvation history, what you see is God doing everything imaginable to lead people away from sin and toward himself. So as an example, he created human beings, first of all, as perfect people in a perfect place. And so not only was their nature correct, but the environment they were raised in was just perfect with nothing wrong with it. And guess what? First available opportunity, they fell into sin. Well, God gave every person a conscience, and he said, we'll allow you to use your conscience to uh, obey God, and I'll give you the promise of sacrifice so that you understand that sin has to be paid for. Well, what happened? Within three chapters later, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, we allowed conscience to kind of run its course, and what does Genesis 6 say? All the thoughts of the intents of human hearts were only, what? Evil all the time. And so God flooded the world, judged all that generation except for Noah and his family, who he by grace saved out of that wicked world. And he started over with, with Noah and with his family. And he gave them laws and standards and a set of human governments. And said, when people become too wicked, human government is to put them to death. So that God wouldn't have to judge the entire planet again. And how did that work? Well, not well. And so God said, well, I'm going to create a special people of my own. And he called Abram, the Aramean, the Syrian, out of out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of the, out of the uh, city of Haran, into a nation that he was going to create, into the land of Canaan. And he gave him a child who had a child, who had children, who had a nation, who were given what? Laws that they could obey God. And it was all very, very clear. You sacrifice this for this purpose and this for this purpose and avoid doing this and do this instead and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that sums up the whole teaching of the law. And they didn't obey it. Even God's special people. And so God sent prophets to call them back to repentance and to say, you're to obey me 
You're to do what I said. Remember, you committed yourself according to the covenant to be, in, be obedient to the law, and they couldn't do it. And so God said, well, I'm going to, through the prophets, he told people, I'm going to put a new law out there. Instead of a written law on tablets of stone, I'm going to write it on your heart. And I'm going to make obedience by grace because I'm not only going to tell you what the standard is, I'm going to give you my own Holy Spirit and enable you to obey. And I'm going to send my son to pay for your sin so that you aren't held guilty of it anymore. And that's what happened. The Spirit came after the Son was sacrificed and called people into relationship with God, and God enabled them to keep His law. You know what the whole rest of the world did? Continued on the course they were on. They rejected God in the garden. They rejected God up to the flood. They rejected God up to Abraham. They rejected God when the law was given. They rejected God when the prophets spoke. They rejected God when Jesus came. And they have continued to reject and reject and reject and reject. And then one day God is going to have a massive judgment called the tribulation that will last for seven years. And the entire world government will be turned over to those who are in rebellion against God. And I believe Christians will not be present in the world at that time, at least at the beginning. Although some will come to repentance even then. And God will have given and said, essentially, for seven years, you can let things be the way that you have always wanted them to be. And I will let you do your thing. And it will turn the world into a living hell. And then Jesus himself will return, and he will establish his reign. And for a thousand years, he will reign with perfect love and perfect justice as the perfect king over the entire earth. And what will happen? At the end of it, rebellion. Yeah. And so when men stand before God and in judgment, they can't say, well, what if you had only created us perfect? I did. Well, what if you had just enabled us to obey our consciences? I did. Well, what if you gave us government to rule over us because obviously we're not capable of obeying on our own? I did. Well, what if you wrote down all your standards and made it really clear so that we had no excuse for not knowing? I did. Well, what if when we disobeyed, you sent forth prophets to call us back to obedience to give us reminders? I did. Well, what if you made it really easy and you made it by grace and you sent even your own spirit to enable us to obey? I did. Well, what if you provided redemption so that no one would have to go to this horrible place? What if you enabled us to have our sins paid for and not counted against us? I did. Well, if you would only let us do our thing just the way we want, well, then you'd see. I did. Well, if you would only come down and reign as yourself so that no one would have any reason not to believe in God because he would be right there in front of you. I did. And after every one of those actions, you continued to rebel. 
And at some point, God's patience is at its limit. And he brings about the final judgment. And the, the just punishment for rejection of God, of telling God, essentially, since the beginning of creation, I want nothing to do with you, is that God puts people in a place where they can have nothing to do with him. And it's called the second death. God cannot forgive them because they will not be forgiven. And it is to experience death forever and ever, cut off from everything good that God has made because you will not repent of your sin and obey God. And the only way of escape is having previously had your name written in the book of life, which happens not based on your works, but based on Jesus' work on your behalf. If you have believed, that is, trusted, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, not for just for sin, but for my sin, for your sin, and was raised from the dead, then your name at that time is written into the book of life. And you are not present at this judgment. You escape. And you will not face the second death in hell. And you will experience a totally different reality, the new heavens and the new earth. If you got your Bible, go to chapter 21. This is the good part of this message. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake which burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Can you even imagine what this will be like? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to just think about this for just a second. That you are in a place a new heavens and a new earth. The old heavens and the old earth, the one that we experience now, will all be destroyed because they have been witness to and participant in and subject to sin and fallenness and all of its consequences. But one day, God is going to make all things completely new, and nothing of the old ways will come into them at all. There will never again be death. There will never again be pain. There will be no reason to mourn. There will be no more tears of suffering and sorrow. There will be no disease. There will be no getting old. Praise God for that. 
Uh, there will be no will be no more of this. It'll be done. It'll be over. And we will live forever in the presence of God, who himself will wipe away every one of the tears of anguish that we have cried. Why? Because he is a gracious God who loves us, who paid for us through the death of his son to be in his presence forever. Because God is a God of justice who demands payment for sin. But he made a way so that no one would have to experience that just payment because that just payment was poured out on Jesus. But somebody has to cry out, I thirst, either you or Jesus. And if it's, if it's you, it's the lake of fire. If it's Jesus, it's the new heaven and the new earth and no more crying, suffering, pain, death. And God himself will be visibly present. In fact, there will be no temple that will be there. There will be no worship structure that you go to to worship God. Why? Because God himself will be there. And you will be able to worship him face to face. And you will behold the Lord for eternity. Now, think about this. When you go to the Grand Canyon, when you go to the Grand Canyon, I've been there twice. First time, I didn't see it because it was fogged in. Second time, I went with the kids, and we were there for several days, and it is awesome. And it, I mean, it is awesome just to stand on the edge of this thing and look at this. But what is it, really? It's a big ditch. It's a big ditch. I'm serious, okay? That's what it is. It's a big ditch that's got water that had run through it and wore away the sandstone. Pretty cool, but still at the end of the day, it's a big hole in the ground. Okay? But we look at it and see the beauty in it that God made. How many of you young men who are not married have noticed a girl and thought, whoa, that's amazing? Okay? How many of you men who are married have noticed your wives and thought, wow? I was a lucky dude, <laughs> okay, the day I married her, right? Now, we think that about things which are beautiful. Can you even imagine, can you even imagine what it is like to stand before God, the maker of all things that are beautiful, for all eternity? And to know that the only reason that you are there is not because you of your own wonderful specialness, but because that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That the son of the king bought you with his blood and brought you into his family because he loved you and chose you and called you to be his. And John continues, these words are absolutely trustworthy. You can take God's word to the bank. It is there to be believed by those who embrace and trust in Jesus to remind them that this world and its sufferings are temporary. 
And he refers here in this passage to the one who conquers, which is a carryover from the first three chapters. In every one of the first three chapters are these letters to the seven churches. And uh, John, John is told to write, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will give this and I will give that. And then here at the end of the book, to the one who conquers, you will have this as an inheritance. How do you conquer? Through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way. To the one who overcomes the world, how do you overcome the world? Through Jesus who said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. He says, you will have all of this. You will conquer by grace through faith in Jesus Christ over sin and death and hell and even over your own fallenness because Jesus has conquered these things on your behalf. And he says also at the end, but the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderer, the sexually immoral, the sorcerer, the idolater, the liar, all of them will have their portion in the lake of fire, which is both comfort and warning. It's comfort because if you are in this place, you want to know that nothing of the old life is going to somehow invade it and ruin it. How many of you would sleep better at night knowing there are not any rapists? I mean, not, not just not any in town, I mean not any, period. That there are no more murderers, that there are no more thieves. That society will no longer pay the consequences for the sexually immoral because there won't be any. That you'll never be lied to ever again. None of these things will ever enter into heaven. Every person who is in heaven will be protected from all these things. But it's also a warning that anybody who is a participant in one of these kinds of sins is giving every indication that they do not actually know the Lord. And they won't be there. Because there are lots of people who make profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, I grew up in the church. I went to Awana as a kid. I heard about Jesus. And yeah, I believe all that stuff, sure. But by their life, they undermine testimony that they give, that they actually do know the Lord. Because if you know Jesus, if you have placed your trust in him, then your, his Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes you. And so these things no longer characterize you. Paul says of a similar list, such were some of you. In other words, you used to do this when you were an unbeliever, but now not. So it's also a warning. If these things are part of your life, make sure that you know who Jesus is and that you have placed your trust in him and turned from your former life. We wrap up. Let me give you the words from Jesus. I quoted Led Zeppelin at the beginning. Let me quote Jesus first here at the end. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And many are those who find it. The gate is narrow and the way is hard. It leads to life and those who find it are few. There are two paths. Amen? Make sure, make sure, make sure you're on the right one.
there's still time, but they, we, we don't know how much time. There's still time. But as the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not turn away. Today is the day of salvation. As long as it is called today, you're not sure where you're going, then let's make doubly sure right now that you understand where you are going and why. So that if I ask you a question, if you died today and I and you stood before Jesus and he said, why should I let you into heaven? You need to have an answer that's biblical. And the answer is, not because of me, not because of me and all the wonderfulness that I have uh, participated in, all of the giving to church that I did, all of the involvement in Boy Scouts, all of the uh, times I walked an old lady across the road, uh, all of the money I gave to United Way, um, you know, all of the donuts that I bought for Rescue 33, you know, uh, I mean, whatever is on your list of what makes you, quote, a good person, you know what, you know what God says about that? Filthy rag, pile of manure. There's one thing that he accepts, and it is the blood of his son covering over your sin. And you say, I have nothing to offer, but Jesus offered himself on my behalf. And I believed it and trusted in it, and I was adopted as your child because of Jesus' death and resurrection on my behalf. And he gave me new life and adopted me into your family. That is the pathway that leads to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth, where, as Peter says, righteousness dwells. Any other answer than that leads the other direction. You need to make sure that you know where you're going to go. If you do know... If you are a believer and you're sitting out there and you're hearing this and you're going, yes, praise God, I do know where I'm going. I will not face judgment like that. Then praise God. Praise God. Amen. We will have plenty of time to praise God for all eternity because if you knew all about me that God knows about me, I'll assure you, you would not let me be your pastor. I'll assure you, okay? But here's the thing. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. If I knew everything about you that God knows about you, I wouldn't let you come here. <laughs> okay? We're all a bunch of losers when it comes to standing before God, right? And there's wonderful freedom in that. There really is. There's great joy in knowing you're a loser who doesn't measure up. Um, and that God's standard is far above you, but by his grace, by his grace, he saves those who of their own effort go to hell. By his grace, because he loves us. He snatches us out of the pathway we're on and brings us into his own family. What kind of a God does that? Takes 
those who murdered his son and adopts them into his own family as sons. And if you're a lady, don't be offended. The word sons there is, is a culturally freighted term. It's the idea that these are the ones who get the inheritance, okay? So if you're a, if you're a lady, don't be ashamed. I'm a son of God, right? I'm the one who gets the inheritance along with Jesus, the natural son. I'm the adopted son, and I get an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that is an amazing, amazing privilege. And we get it by grace. So praise God. If you have nothing else to praise God and thank him for this, this year, I mean, you lost your job, your TV's in hock, uh, you know, you and your wife are fighting. If you've got nothing else to praise God for, praise God for this, that he loves you and saved you and will bring you home by his grace. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that by grace we are saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Father, we know that there are only two kinds of people in the world, bad people and Jesus. And Father, we thank you that by your grace, Jesus saves bad people and brings them into your own family with a status just like his as sons. And Father, we are amazed at your grace. We pray for grace to come on anyone here today who has never heard the marvelous message that Jesus Christ died to save sinners and rose again to give them new life. Father, if anyone has never heard that or never believed it personally for themselves and been changed by it, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them that they might escape from the judgment that awaits those who reject God. And Father, we love you and we thank you for your word, which tells us all these things so clearly. And we pray that we might live in light of the word you've given. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.